Solomon, and it's chapter 1, verse 5 to 2, verse 7. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 5 to 2, verse 7. I'm very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so was my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if that poetry has ignited the flames of your heart, I'm glad. I hope you have been reading and familiarizing yourself with the Song of Songs. Uh, And if you've been reading it and you've been thinking, what on earth is it saying, Um, you wouldn't be alone. It is a difficult book to understand and interpret, and by God's grace, we'll do our best over the coming weeks to help us all understand this most um, sacred text. Um, A couple of resources that you can grab just out there on the Connect desk, Um, a few books uh, for for sale, Strange New World by Carl Truman, um, kind of tracks over the last 500 years, how do we get to this moment um, of gender confusion? Um, He does a great job at that, uh, so I recommend that. Um, Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage, um, so for those who are married or considering marriage, um, this is a great book to, to, to grab and have a read regarding marriage. Uh, and then Kevin DeYoung, Men, Women in the Church. Uh, this is an excellent kind of compact view of the, the landscape when it comes to gender, um, male-female marriage relationships, um, how we see that play out uh, in the life of a church. So there's just a couple of the resources. Um, there'll be prices on the back. You can just um, pay that to our account and, um, with the book name, and that'll be the way that we track that. Um, please don't steal them. Um, that would be appreciated. Um, there are some little pamphlets that are like in a slot. You can take those ones, read them, and then bring them back so someone else can read them. Um, that would be lovely, so they're free. Um, well, let's pray as we, uh, as we jump into today's text. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good gift of your word. We pray now through the power of the Holy Spirit, it would speak to us. What we are not, would you make us? What we know not, would you teach us? And what we have not, would you grant us? For your name's sake. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a lovely princess, but she had an enchantment upon her of a fearful sword, which could only be broken by love's first kiss. She was locked away in a castle, guarded by a terrible fire-breathing dragon, Many brave knights had attempted to free her from this dreadful prison, but none prevailed. 
She waited in the dragon's keep, in the highest room of the tallest tower, for a true love and a true love's first kiss. This, of course, is the opening scene of one of the greatest love stories in 21st century, Shrek. Story of an unlovable ogre who, in the hopes of keeping his swamp, ends up falling in love with a princess uh, who he has to rescue on behalf of the king. Um, the, the movie draws on all sorts of lessons about eternal beauty, uh, accepting one another for who you are, and of course, dealing with the complexion of layers. Well, we are in another love story at the moment. Uh, the love song between a young woman and her shepherd boy, as told in the Song of Songs. And we got lessons to draw out as well. Last week, we opened the series um, of this God-inspired uh, book of love poetry whose purpose is to form the people of God in the ways of love, sex, desire, and marriage. We saw the goodness of covenant love and desire through this woman's passionate expression and longing for intimacy. And whilst we said the book isn't to be primarily interpreted allegorically, which is to see kind of hidden meaning in every single verse. We are taking a story between human love. It certainly um, can be interpreted by way of analogy or typology, where we think of Christ's love for the church and our love in response to him. The two are slightly different. Whilst tradition suggested uh, Solomon as the author, we think it's perhaps an unknown author who is writing the best of the best songs. That's a song of songs. This song is in the spirit of Solomon. It is kingly. It is exceptional. And there's a kind of a loose progression through the song of this couple courting and dating uh, to the wedding day and then maturing in marriage. All of this is kind of set within the biblical bounds of covenant love. Uh, and instead of the book presenting to us a kind of how-to manual, on, on dating and sex, it, it really does want to uh, resound this compelling melody that we would hear and so seek to harmonize with our lives. The harmony that I want us to focus on today as we tease out covenant love, I want us to see how in covenant love we are to foster security and significance. Security and significance. Significance through affirming and adoring words and security through provision and protection. So let's see first how covenant love and a relationship between two people um, fosters this significance that we all need. Uh, going through the teenage years can be tricky. Um, if we were in a Pentecostal church, we'd all look for the amen, uh, but we're not, so you can just nod. Teenage years are tricky. Uh, navigating uh, increasing responsibilities, uh, bodily changes, uh, noticing this other gender that is all of a sudden interesting and no longer afraid of, but then you are afraid of them. All of this kind of happens, and one of the most dreadful things that happens at this time is, of course, the presence of pimples. Um, why this happens here and not later in life, I, I'm not sure, um, but how can something so small affect people in such big ways? Uh, it can leave a lot of people feeling quite insecure, very self-conscious. Um, but it's true, a lot of our insecurities don't just remain skin deep, do they? Uh, in fact, you think through your, your life and who you are, and you would, you'd probably take notice there's a lot of insecurities that really start to come to the surface, particularly in our teenage years. Well, this direct and desirous woman we met last week is also self-conscious about how she looks. And she has this lingering feeling that she's not all that significant. Notice in verse 5, she recognizes that she is dark but lovely. She's dark like the, the black goatskin uh, tents of Kedar. And she doesn't want people to look upon her, verse 6. While she's conscious she is lovely, she also figures she, she falls short of the standard of beauty. She doesn't quite measure up. Now, her issue with darkness is not a racial one, but in fact a social one. Uh, the tan culture... Um, the tan look in cultures signifies something different back then than what it does today. And today, if you, if you tanned up, it's kind of signifying leisure and lifestyle and vitality and youth and, and women mainly, sometimes men, go and get spray tans to, to kind of emulate this look. But back then, it wasn't a sign of leisure and, and, and prosperity. It was a sign of poverty. You were poor and had to so work outside. You couldn't be a, a lady of luxury inside the house. 
And so for this woman, she's been burned by the sun, and we see that she's also been burned by family. Forced to work outside by her mother's sons, most likely half-brothers, who are angry with her for reasons we're not sure. She feels like she doesn't measure up to the standard of beauty in the culture. It's interesting, isn't it, just how the standard of beauty just changes over time? Um, some of you would be old enough to be able to wear the pants you wore 20 years ago, and now that they're back in fashion... Some of you are realizing that the, the pants you wore 20 year, years ago, which used to be wide due to life growing, now feel a bit slimmer on their body. That was kind of me for the last 10 years, very skinny jeans. Anyway, um, fashion changes, and the standard of what the culture says is beautiful changes. Uh, what hasn't really changed is the exhaustible impact it has on people to remain, to keep, to looking beautifully. Uh, there's an article I, I read recently. Uh, it was describing... It's actually addressing uh, Margot Robbie. Uh, you might be familiar with Margot Robbie. She was recently known for her work in Barbie, uh, the movie. Um, and yet, in this article, the internet had decided to describe her as mid. That is, mid-attractive. So the verdict on the, the face of Barbie, the quintessential woman proclaimed and out, you know, outspoken to all the world, and the internet goes... Margot Robbie, mid. Mid-level attractive. Well, if Margot Robbie isn't safe from critics, then no one is. In a culture that so tightly um, kind of connects self-worth to our self-appearance, it's hard to fight against the feelings of not measuring up. I think it'd be safe to say there's a sense of dissatisfaction in most people at some point in your life. I think it would be also safe to say that women particularly feel the judgment and the sting more harshly. It's a bit of a stereotype, but, but women may look in the mirror, regardless of how beautiful they are, and think, not good. As men can look in the mirror, and perhaps a bit out of shape with unkept hair, and think, not bad. <laughs> Whether you're 13 or 30, 16 or 60, though we'll all have reason somewhere to not quite like the person we're looking back in the mirror at us. Sadly for this woman, the demands of her family and work have meant that she hasn't been able to attend to her body. That's the reference to her vineyard. She's been looking after the vineyard, but neglected her own. There's been no pedicures, no manicures to, 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 to clean out the dirt under her nails, and her best friend is a scrunchie. You see in 2 verse 1 that she compares herself to a rose of Sharon, a a lily of the valleys. You can hear the the, the aches of insignificance in her life. Now, we hear rose and we think that's quite beautiful, that's a standard, that's unique. But but the reference here really is just a, a common Palestinian wildflower. We might use, you know, she's like a dandelion, kind of everywhere. She says she's pretty, which is pretty common. She kind of sees herself as plain Jane. I wonder if you were to look at yourself in the mirror, or if you would have a moment of self-assessment, how do you see yourself? How have you gone thinking through the, the temptations and trappings of comparison to, to those around you, to those you see portrayed on social media or marketing, to maybe a friendship group? Maybe as you've aged, you've become more disappointed in how you look and so feel worse about yourself. wonder how you feel if you measure up. Well, this woman before us, the question that the, the poem puts before us is, well, what does her beloved think of her? We've heard what she thinks, but what does he think of her? Well, to help fight the feelings of insignificance comes his words. And his words here are affirming, they are adoring, and they are appropriate. Affirming because to him, she is an absolute stunner. This, this man kind of meets her where she's at, and she says, all right, if you're a wildflower, then you are a wildflower among the brambles. Basically, you are a lily of the valleys, a lily among brambles. You are a rose amongst thorns. To him, everyone else looks like a thorn compared to how beautiful she is. Now, he's not trying to diminish other women here. Rather, he's trying to elevate her, how significant she is to him. 
And a lily, well, a lily might be common, but a lily is lovely. There's there's, um, records of being carved in the walls of Solomon's temple. And you remember Jesus' words uh, in Matthew 6, 28 said, Not even King Solomon in all of his splendor was arrayed like one of these lilies. Man, this lover, this shepherd boy is attentive to her words. She's expressed insecurity, and he comes in here and expresses affirmation. His words affirm her and assure her. And notice his, his focus is on her. He's captured by her beauty. He only has eyes for her. Um, in, in, in photography, you can have multiple kind of lenses that allow you to have a, a, a wider field of view. So you can have a wide-angle lens like this, which would kind of have everybody in the room, or you can have what they call more of a, a portrait lens, which is going to zoom in on a particular kind of target. This man operates not with a wide-angle lens, but a zoomed-in lens, a focal point, a portrait of his woman, and that is his standard of beauty. She, he thinks the world of her. This is how it ought to be in covenant love. Our eyes are to be only for our spouse. We aren't to be looking elsewhere. And when you've got eyes only for your spouse, and they are your source of beauty, as, as they change and they grow and and as age happens, your, your be- the beauty of them continues, that, that it's fixated on them. They change their hair from blonde to brown, you're into brown. <laughs> if it's brown and then slowly changing to gray, you're into gray. Beauty is in the eye there, focused. His compliments are adorning. So not only is he affirming, they are adorn- adoring of her, sorry. I compare you, verse 9, my love. To a mare among Pharaoh's chariots, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Now, lads, you've got to be careful quoting scripture to your wife, simply saying, you are a horse. Uh, even in French, tu es un cheval, it probably won't cut it, so you've got to be nuanced. So what's the reference here? I think that some say the reference here to a, a mare among Pharaoh's chariots um, might be referring to military tactic when they would release a mare on heat into the kind of the, the horses, the stallions, um, and kind of confuse them and get them all riled up. And so the, the picture might be that this guy is saying, my lover, you are a cause of distraction. Uh, I can't think clearly. Uh, I, I, you're on my mind whilst I'm at work. I, I'm kind of caught off guard by you. Um, it might be that. Or it might be his reference to, to the way that the mare's bridles was stunningly decorated and ornamented for some parade or a ceremonial occasion. That kind of fits with where he, how he describes next. Uh, these adornments bring out her beauty, pointing to how beautiful the woman is, the, the jewels on her cheeks, the necklace. He's just drawing out who she is. Down to verse 15. He says, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Cue Delta Goodrum innocent eyes. This is what's happening in the background. She's got those eyes, and he loves them. Old dove eyes. We're not exactly sure what the, the purpose and the point or the, the metaphors trying to pitch out, bring out a picture of peace or, or hope or innocence, but the eyes are the window to the soul, and he's just captivated by her eyes. And I like his re- repetition of calling her beautiful. Fellas, this is helpful. If you are stuck for words, just, you are beautiful, my darling. It's a big, it's a, it's a helpful word to draw out. He says, behold, you are beautiful. His comments... He said they're affirming, his comments are adoring, and his compliments are also appropriate. You'll notice here that his, his compliments are focused on the face, and they haven't kind of gone below the neckline. We'll notice later that they will. I think this is where his attention ought to be. This is where his praise is. Now, from our reading of Song and Songs, we, though they may be betrothed or engaged to be married, they're not wed yet. They haven't entered covenant union. And so there's a generous praise of her, but there's restraint. This is just another way I think he cultivates significance in her. She isn't some prize to take to bed, but rather he sees her and appreciates her for who she is. She's only got eyes for him. Isn't this wonderful? It's not only that this guy thinks that she's quite a looker, a stand out in the crowd, but she responds in, in 2 verse 3. And she says, you're one in a million as well. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so was my beloved among the young men. She may be to him 
uh, a flower among thorns, and he is to her an apple tree in the forest. And so what they're doing is they're just drawing out the significance of one another. It's a good thing to draw that out, to be generous in words and praise. In a world that, that may not think much of you, to your spouse, you can mean the world. When you face difficult days, hard times, exhausting co-workers, opposition from others, yet in, in covenant love you may be cherished, esteemed, praised, supported, seen, loved. You, you may not feel like much to others, but to your spouse, you're seen, known, and valued. It's the, the significance that in, in covenant love we to give and minister to one another. Now, the second thing we see is that covenant love fosters security. It fosters security through protection and provision. Now, I don't know as you're hearing the Song of Songs, what kind of imagery and pictures are kind of coming to mind and setting, kind of the, the design set of the stage. Here, I think that the poetry kind of takes us to the countryside. There's imagery of trees and, and shepherd and valley. And so there's a little mountain getaway. That's kind of how I picture this. A little house on the prairie because it's all real innocent. She doesn't want to, and, and I love her here, she doesn't want to wait to, till her man, till, till the, the work day's over. She wants to know where he is now, and she wants to kind of meet him for lunch. She, doesn't want, to, she, doesn't, she wants to get away and be with him. Do you see that in verse 7 of, 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 of chapter 1? Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pass to your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So her question's going to come as this flurry of excitement. Where can I be with my man? I want to be with the one who my soul loves. And in her desire to want to be with him, she's really uh, attentive to not giving off the wrong impression to other men. I like this about her. That's the idea of veiling herself. So a veil, we're going to see later, is veils used of a bride, yes. But a veil is also used of a prostitute. You think through the famous story of Genesis 38 of Tamar veiling herself as a prostitute to, to entice Judah to sleep with her for an offspring. And so she says, when I go and find you, I don't want to be looking and giving off the wrong impression to other guys. So you tell me where I can find you so I can go straight there. It's good to know, even in her insecurity, she, she's mindful of the impression she gives to other men. Her love is for this man, this man alone. She's not trying to catch the eye of other men. She's not trying to give off other signals. I think that's kind of different to the way our culture operates, isn't it? We often, so insecurity of people actually says, I want the attention of more. In fact, I will engage in the trappings of celebrity culture and cosmetics and, and, and manufacture something better so that others will get more attention on me. Well, she's not falling for that. She's choosing modesty. She's choosing devotion. She's choosing intentionality. She wants to be clear with her man. I'm after you. I'm not trying to get everyone's attention. And so the man responds. Now, um, in verse 8, this is the first time we've heard from him speak um, in, the, in the poem. And in, if you were reading this in Hebrew, there would be kind of gender pronouns that are used to signify that this is now a masculine voice speaking rather than a feminine voice. Um, which, of course, you picked up because, you you know, everyone's reading Hebrew. I don't know this stuff, so the commentators say. And so here they are, the man speaking now. He says, if you do not know, I'm most beautiful among women. So he's addressing her now. He loves this phrase. He's calling her beautiful a lot. And he's kind of playful in how he um, directs her, doesn't he? Um, he kind of just hints at where he's going to be. But he, but he kind of helps her put together some dots. So, you're after me, the shepherd boy. Well, where do you think you'll find the shepherd? Follow the sheep. That's where you'll find the shepherd. That's what he says. Follow in the tracks of the flock and pastor your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. Then her arrival comes, and again, she sees him as this kind of king on a couch. Now, again, I, I don't think this is trying to... So, option one is this is... So somehow the king is on his couch, King Solomon's on his couch, and she's, she's kind of contrasting what it's like being back in the palace and being out in the countryside with him. But I don't think that's the case, because in this approach to seeing this person on the couch and her, her fragrance going forward, we're going to see in verse, uh, with verse 16, 
she referred to this couch as our couch, and she's addressing her beloved. She's not addressing King Solomon, she's addressing her beloved. So the couch of the king that he's on, verse 16, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. So what is she saying here? So I think she's gone out to find a man. I think she's kind of seen him, and in and, and, and a fragrance, she kind of wants it to be sent to him to draw him in. And the picture of the, the cedars and, and the, the beams of the house and the rafters of pine, I kind of picture them out on the forest floor. They're kind of lying down looking up and just imagining life together, imagining a family and a household. That's, that's the picture here. It's good that as she's imagining relationships, she's not just imagining their relationship, she's imagining the whole package of a relationship, isn't it? It's a house, it's a home, it's children. You'll notice in the book of Song of Songs, there will be a, a continual kind of connection between sexual intimacy and, and childbearing. We'll tease that over the, com- the, over the coming weeks. But this is kind of the package of marriage where, where, where it plays out. And so here she is imagining this and she says, this man, she says, can I hold you close to my heart? And that, that might be what that phrase, my beloved is a satchel of myrrh, satchel of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Maybe that's what she's getting at there. And so it was like the fragrance, it was the cologne, it was a raptor, uh, put over the head and kind of sat there to give off um, a nice fragrance. I think it's kind of reinforced with when, he, when she says, verse 40, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi, kind of like a bouquet of flowers, again, held close to the chest. Now, though the location of the henna blossoms in Getty, um, literally named Kid Fountain, right? So there's overtones of, um, of what, what this man kind of means to her as she were to hold him close and children um, for the future. The phrase um, may also mean, when it says uh, lies between my breasts, it may also mean like a lodging the night or stay the night, which might have some sexual overtones. Rather, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to imply that. So I just kind of picture her, the moment kind of lying down. He might be lying on, on her, his head resting upon her and they're imagining their life together. Now, you'll notice in other parts of the song, in Song of Songs, if you've read it, the language does start to heat up. I've got weeks one and two where it was the coolest and I've got the other fellows to do the rest. <laughs> I'll be doing the last one as well. You'll notice the, the language around sex, desire, and intimacy. Whilst it is implicit, it's never explicit. It's pure. It's not pornographic. It's different to ancient Near Eastern love poetry of its day or Egyptian love poetry. Very different to the kind of poetic songs that are sung and shown on our radios and music clips today. Maybe candid, but as one writer points out, it's never crude. There's almost a veil as if it were put on what Paul would call the less presentable parts so as to not have them fully on display but for you to catch the drift. And it's also important to know in the Song of Songs, this is a, it's, it's, it's in the word form. We are reading it, we are hearing it. Hearing poetry with our ears is very different than viewing sexual activity with our eyes. So that's significant There's good reasons why the Song of Songs should never be made into a Netflix special. It's meant to stay here in the realm of audio. Some things are too sacred to show. And so as we return to the text now, I want you just to notice that she's praising him for his provision and she's praising him for his protection. You see, it's the apple tree that she finds shade from the hot sun, protection. And it's his fruit that is sweet to her taste, provision. Life out there, tending to the garden, the vineyard that her, her family, her brothers locked her up in, it was hot and it was hard. Well, with him, life is shaded and it is sweet. The allusion to, to shadow is similar to Psalm 91.1. He who dwells in the shadow of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So she feels safe with him. She feels secure with him. If you've read the song, you'll notice that her father's never mentioned. And, and her brothers here haven't done right by her. They're the equivalent of the ugly stepsisters in Cinderella. She is Cinderella. She, she's stuck with a tough family. There's no one really to protect her or provide for her, so she's been doing it herself. And like Fiona locked up in a castle by family, kind of waiting for a, a knight to come along. 
a man who will do right by her and who will care for her. And this man does. Verse 4. She says, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was one of love. The banqueting house means the house of wine. We know there's their love is like wine, there's, there's fullness and richness, love is what here what they drink of in their relationship. Now that banner over me kind of draws from military language or, or clan imagery, right, where, where certain battalions would be marked out with a banner over them. So you might have archers here or, or, or foot soldiers here and at the very back, the pacifists, you know, just, just sitting back watching and praying. Well, this banner over her is what? Love. It's his banner over her and she loves it. His love has won her heart. She's saying, I am marked out by his love for me. This is who I am. This is how I see myself. I'm loved by him, kept by him, protected by his love. His protection and affection comes with strength and it comes with affection. And the effect on her, we could say it is gloriously taxing, gloriously taxing. You see his provision for her back in verse three when he says that he is sweet to her taste. That's provision. She, he knows what she likes and he sustains her. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples for I am sick with love. No wonder she's sick with love. This kind of love is intoxicating. And she just says, keep up the love. Or more of this. Keep fueling this romance. This thing isn't to burn out. Let's keep going. We're, we're headed towards marriage. I want more of you, my provider. Now, I don't think that here um, she or, or we are suggesting that kind of couples should remain in this kind of lovesick uh, kind of intensity all the time, each and every day. You might get that impression from the song, isn't it? These lovebirds, I mean, she's sick with love, he's kind of crazy about her, and it's um, kind of firing on all cylinders. I, I think C.S. Lewis is right when he pointed out, he says, who could bear to live in that kind of excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendship? Now, those bursts of kind of lovesickness have their place and purpose, I think, to kind of compel you to lean in, to know more, to understand more, to, to focus your attention, focus your efforts, focus the kind of, um, yeah, goal of your life. I, I, I would love a bride. I'd, I'd love a, a groom. I, I want um, this marriage. But the sustaining passion doesn't always have to look like being sick with love, but rather deeply devoted, kept under the banner of love, a relationship that affirms and adores one another, a relationship where there is protection and provision. In this covenant of love, the feelings, the feelings of a marriage are protected and guarded. Covenant keeps them safe. What might this mean for us or our husbands? Those called by God to love their wives like Christ loved the church, which is what the Apostle Paul picks up in Ephesians 5. You are called by God to protect and provide for your wives. Every time a husband shows this kind of commitment to his, his wife by sacrificing his own desires, his own comforts, his own preferences for her good, a, a, a wife becomes more assured more secure, a response is more willing to, to respect her husband. Provide this tone, husbands, for your, for your family, for your wife. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 5.28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Friends, it is a shame when, when men spend more time loving themselves than less time loving their wives. When more attention and energy is poured out on their dreams and their looks whilst their wives go to the wayside and neglected. That is not the picture of Christian marriage. Husbands are to love their wives as they love their own bodies, seeking ways to nurture and cherish. Just as you seek to take care of yourself, Put that same energy drive and desire to taking care of your wife. What does she need? Providing nourishing words for her, cherishing words for her, complimenting her, encouraging her in a world that is rife with criticism, with judgments, with put downs, 
the world will not esteem, particularly young mums, it won't esteem the work you're doing. It will just lay on more burdens and demands on you. Husbands, come here. Just speak encouraging words to their wives, tending to her emotions, whatever state they may be in. By God's grace, being a non-anxious presence to care for her, be the safety of a godly man. And women, like, and for you, the, like the woman here, what she's doing, she's, she's praising her husband. She's praising her husband for any hints of protection and provision that she sees. Any hints. He may be not where you want it to be. His kind of care of you or his protection of you or his provision for you or his you know, attention to you may not be where it ought to be. But if you see any hints of that, praise it, encourage it, foster it. Any ways you notice him take care for you, be mindful of that. Any ways that you're, he's attentive to you or your family's need, encourage him in that, respect him in that, thank him for working hard, esteem that. This helps foster the significance of being a man in a world where it has been cursed by God, where we work by the sweat of our brow, to dust we shall return, feel like we're getting nowhere, the gift of a godly wife to encourage and esteem her man. Come alongside him and praise him. Oh, for men and women more broadly then, even in the church, regular affirmations. We should be regularly just affirming the good we have in one another. We should regularly be doing that with each other, making encouragement the, the kind of language that we would speak. Silent gratitude has never warmed a woman's heart. An unspoken word never built up a man. Due to our sin struggle and weaknesses, I'm not sure what your inner dialogue might look like, but it's probably not always positive. You might say things like, I'm the worst. I'm useless. I don't have much to offer. You're better with someone else. This community doesn't need me. What do I have to offer? Well, into that space of insecurity and insignificance comes the life-giving words of God's people to minister. You are loved. You are seen. You are noticed. We're here for you. We'll walk beside you. Oh, that we would foster such tender words in our relationships. Wouldn't that do wonders for a church community? Husbands and wives speaking this way to one another. Wouldn't this be wonderful in a church community for just men and women to be speaking this way to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? I think this protecting and providing, affirming and adoring love is what we want to cultivate in our relationships. It will help foster security and significance amongst us in good and godly ways. And as we cultivate beauty, <clears throat> beauty and strength in our men and in our women, we're actually going to help the younger generation know what to look for will actually help the younger generation understand what the, the kind of love and affection and attention they can get within the people of God so they don't go looking to the ways of the world, chasing external affirmation and attention. Our marriages ought to reinforce this. They don't need to be perfect. But by God's grace, they'll present a picture of his loving kindness that helps the community of God get a greater glimpse of what true covenant love is. That is why healthy marriages is good for single people. Single people, you need to see healthy marriages around you. Not least of which, if you desire marriage one day, it's about preparation. But so that you also would, be, would have your attention drawn and directed to the substance, not just the shadow. Marriage is the shadow. Christ and his love, for covenant love for all eternity is the substance. And you can live out this now. You, you, you may be like Christ. You, you, you will have desires for intimacy and connection. They, they may not be worked out in marriage this side of eternity, but it doesn't mean single people, you fall short of God's standard. It doesn't mean you, you kind of second-rate citizens not, not feeling the intimacy and love. No, well, Jesus himself was able to work this out through close relationships and friendships with his disciples, with friends, with men and women, and ultimately with his heavenly Father. So as you look at the shadow of marriage on earth, by grace, let it point you to the substance of Christ in heaven, where one day we'll be fully known and fully embraced. Well, that is how the scene ends, with him embracing her. It says in verse six, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Now the scene here is intimate, but not necessarily sexual. That word for embrace is used sexually sometimes in the Bible, like in Proverbs 5.20. Is why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and 
embrace the bosom of an adulteress, so it can do that. But it's also just used to communicate intimacy, like when Laban embraced Jacob or when Jacob embraced Esau in Genesis 29 and 33. So I think that's the sense here. There's intimacy. There are other places that, where things will become more explicit, but that, that's not here. The couple then is enjoying godly intimacy in a way that isn't crossing the lines into sexual intimacy. That day is coming, uh, and it's coming soon, but it's not now. Now she feels protected by him. She feels safe with him. Covenant love, even being worked out prior to to move towards marriage, places the, the right guards for safety and security. Covenant love seeks to guard significance and security. So it's in this context that we get her first admonition to the um, young woman to protect this kind of love. You see that in verse 7 in chapter 2? It says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now we're going to hear this phrase three times over the series, and so let me explain a little bit now what it means. Um, I think you can catch the drift of what she's getting at. And so firstly, she asks them to swear, to make an oath. Not, she's not kind of asking them to swear on her mother's grave or by the beard of Zeus. No, she's asking them to swear by the gazelles or the does of the fields. Why these animals? Well, on one hand, these animals were known for their kind of beauty and fertility and association with lovemaking. So maybe for the sake of true love. Both these animals are used in the song to describe the man and the woman. The man referred to as a, um, a gazelle in 2, 8 to 9 and 17 and 8, 14. And, and the, wife's, the wife's breast referred to as twin fawns from, of, a, of a gazelle, or does, 4, 5 and 7, 3. And so maybe the picture is um, for the sake of true love, for those passionate lo- lovers, s- swear to me. But the phrase actually, there's an overtone here that's missed in the English language. The phrase actually should make us think of God, an oath before God. One commentator states it like this. The Hebrew word for gazelles sounds a lot like the word hosts, perhaps an allusion to Lord of hosts. And the phrase, those of the fields, sounds like El Shaddai. The purity pledge then is, is made in the sight of God and with the need of his help. So I think that's, that's what she's kind of asking to take this oath for. Love here is personified, representing deep desire, relational and physical intimacy. We've seen that desires can drive you crazy and they can make, you, make a girl sick with love. Love is as strong as death. It flashes a fire, says eight, six to seven. Love is powerful, so it needs to be what? Protected. Ray Alden says, sex is like fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it burns down the house. Love needs to be protected. We don't want to burn down the house. So listen to her words, daughters of Jerusalem, young men and young women. Make the oath. Love may have an agenda, but you have a choice. For the sake of God, for the good of others, do not stir or awaken love until it pleases. And it pleases both literally and figuratively, in the covenant of marriage. That's when it pleases. Isn't it good just to know that the Bible understands what it means to be human? Like the Bible gets hormones and desires, intense desires, desires that's hard to say no to when you're moving towards being intimate. It understands it. And in order to protect the the sacred connection of sex, the act of covenant love, it, it provides a warning to wait for the right time. Without the covenant of marriage, sexual intimacy reinforces insecurity in a person because there's no commitment. Within the covenant of marriage, sexual intimacy fosters significance as you give you and you alone to your spouse. You may ask the question, then when is the right time to awaken love? Well, more on that over the coming weeks, but for here, ultimately, sexual arousal shouldn't be sought after or intentionally stirred up until the safety of covenant marriage. Principally, then, it doesn't make much sense to be dating someone 
in the consideration of potentially marrying them unless that's a viable option in the foreseeable near future. No point warming something up only to have to tell it to cool down. We're seeing here, we're seeing the covenant love in the Bible is precious, is to be protected at the right time. For her, it seems like she's got the right man, it's just not quite the right time. In a couple of weeks, it will be. Covenant love ought to foster significance and security in one another, and it ought to help lovers, help love um, between couples feel and look like a paradise. It's kind of where this scene ends, doesn't it? This whole feeling is one of paradise. Even the imagery is this kind of harken back to Eden. Think about Eden. You've, you've got the, the mountains and the trees and the flowers and, and the animals and the smells and the senses. It's, it's springtime in their love. It's blooming marvelous. That's what this thing is. The love is blooming. It is blossoming. But perhaps as you glean at Eden, it doesn't make you feel thoughts of joy and hope. Maybe as you glance at Eden, it just reminds you how far away from paradise you actually are. Perhaps in your marriage, perhaps in your single devotion to God. You see Eden and all you see is the shame of the garden, the condemnation. Like Fiona from Shrek, you just feel the kind of curse of sin. And perhaps it makes, you, you don't want anyone to gaze upon you. You don't really want people to see you. Because if they see you for who you really are, you don't think they'd like what they see. Maybe like the woman in the song, some of us have complicated relationships with our family. Maybe some of you have felt the sins of abuse from the very people who ought to have protected you. And as a result, you feel the impact in this life. With your sexuality may be feeling confused or conflicted. Perhaps some of you face the neglect of a spouse. Maybe you're at the center of unwarranted words, unguarded lips, the kind of attention you long for you, you may not even get. Perhaps some of you just feel like yeah, no one gazing upon you because of echo shame. And so you can keep relationships at bay. You even keep maybe your current relationship. You don't want to let them all the way in because of shame. Glancing back at Eden can be an unpleasant task, can't it? But what if the song wants us to move forward beyond Eden? What if the Song of Songs isn't just about how things ought to have been without the feeling of hope of where we are at? But what if the song wants us to look forward? See, not all of us are going to long for connection and intimacy. That's true of what it means to be human. We want that, regardless of how sin has distorted it. And what we truly need is the covenant love of God in our lives to help us feel ultimately to find our ultimate significance and our ultimate security. Philip Ryken says, we were made to be lovers. And this song awakens a desire for intimacy that can only be satisfied with a personal relationship with the living God. The only thing that we need to overcome between the Garden of Eden and the future is the curse of sin. Curse needs to be broken in our lives. Think of Princess Fiona from Shrek on the outside. She just dismisses that anyone could fall in love with her. They knew about her transformation. And so she puts all her hopes in this one basket of experiencing true love's kiss to reverse the curse. However, when she finally does kiss Shrek and the spell is broken, she takes true love's true form. And she discovers that she is an ogre. Do you remember what she says? She says, I don't understand. She says, I'm supposed to be beautiful. Shrek says, but you are beautiful. Curse was broken. True beauty was seen. She could be loved for who she was. And she began to see herself through the eyes of her lover, her redeemer, her rescuer. That, my friends, is the invitation of the gospel the good news, to get a different perspective of how we see ourselves. We have a real view of ourselves in the ugliness of our sin, in the brokenness of our sin. The Christian story isn't about covering up our sin, but rather confessing our sin and finding freedom and forgiveness in Christ who does forgive us, presenting them to him, 
See, Christ comes to be our protector, doesn't he? Ultimate protector. He protects us from the penalty of sin. He, he sacrifices his life as the true shepherd king for his loved ones. He lays it down. In victory, he rises from the dead and places a banner over, of love over his people so that we would be secure. His commitment means he isn't going away. He sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. Christ is our provider. He gives us a righteousness that we did not have and we could not earn. A breathtaking robe adorned with glory without trace or sin. We may have been darkened by sin, but in, with his righteousness, we are also lovely. Friends, this love acknowledges that you fall short of the true standard of holy beauty because of your sin. But it also gives you hope that you don't need to be beautiful in order to be loved. It was because of your, uns- your, sp- your spiritual unloveliness that Christ died for you. You see? Meets you where you're at. He loves you as you are because Christ has taken the distance, dealt with the penalty of our sin. You know who we haven't heard from in, in the portion of the song today? Remember at the start, she says, I'm dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. And the daughters haven't spoken back. We haven't heard their refrain. We don't know what they think about her. And do you know why? At one level, it doesn't matter what they think. It matters what her beloved thinks. What does he think of her? And so it is for the Christian. What does God think of me? How does he see me? We need to embrace this for ourselves. I wonder, have you done that? Have you taken God's truths revealed through the gospel, how he sees you now in Christ? Have you, have you taken that and have begun to apply that into your heart? Let it start to settle into the deeper crevices and cracks of your heart. Like Paul did in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What, what's Paul doing? He's, he's taking the general love of God for his people and he's making it personal. He's letting it settle into his heart, feeling its blessing or, or think of the hymn. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldest die for me? For me. Darkened by sin, but lovely. Pretty, but pretty common. Flawed, certainly. Loved, without a doubt. Christ's covenant love, we find our ultimate security and our ultimate significance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us take the wonderful truths of your word? Would you help us diminish them to one another in our relationships? And would you help us to embrace it personally in our lives, we pray. For your name's sake. Amen.